All right. So if you have your Bibles, take them out, please. We're going to read two letters, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. And I have a third letter that's not actually in your Bible, but it was written. It's called the letter to Diognetus. And it's an ancient letter, this artifact that was found. It's written about 130 AD, and you'll see why it comes into play. I'm going to read an excerpt from that as well. Uh, this letter that was written was written to someone to describe what the Christian community was like in that day. This person had heard, Diognetus had heard about these Christians, but didn't know quite what their story was. And so this letter was written to kind of describe it. So it's not authoritative scripture. It's more sort of like a snapshot, almost like these pictures that we saw from mission. It's a snapshot of what some Christians look like. And I think it so closely echoes the two letters that we're going to read in the Bible as to what Christian family should look like. That it's such an encouragement for us to see. It's not just in the pages of scripture. Throughout history, these moments of God's family have, have been active, have been real, have been tangible, they've been visible to the world. And we want to be that same thing. We, we are settlers. You know, we're settlers in this land. We've been put here for a time and a season. So I'm going to read a couple letters from scripture and then one really fascinating one hopefully can inspire us to be settlers in our land for God's glory. So let me say a word of prayer and then we'll, we'll read these letters together. Jesus, please speak to us through your words written, through your spirit given, and through the lessons of history. Be able to look back and see how you have worked and led your people. Father God, I pray that you would lead us and work in us in the same way today. May we not be different from the pages of Bible, but may we be continued pages of the Bible still being written. May your kingdom come and your will be done still today and in us. We thank you for the privilege of being a part of your kingdom work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so if you want to flip to the book of Jeremiah, that's our Old Testament letter. And I'd like to introduce it by having us think this way. I think the whole story of human history, people, and all the things we see in scripture, and even civilizations apart from scripture, but what people are searching for and sometimes finding and sometimes not finding is belonging. Is belonging. Some place to be and some people to be with. The sense of belonging, a sense of home. If you look at it from the very beginning, we see that God created the first people and they belonged. There was no such thing as being ostracized. There was no such thing as being judged. There was no such thing as being canceled. There was no such thing as being blocked out of people's lives, right? Oh, that happens all the time. And that's usually a pretty painful process for us when it happens now, but it wasn't supposed to be that way. It was supposed to feel like we belonged. We belonged with God. We belonged with people. We had a place. And then sin comes and makes a mess of it and they're kicked out. And now you have this, these people that are kind of wandering in the wilderness. They've got each other, but they've got no place. They might belong with each other, but they don't belong where they are. And God says, well, let me give you a taste of what that's going to be like. And so we get the, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the family, that's going to the promised land, right? So they've got their people, and he's bringing them to a place where they can belong, a place they can call their own. They can feel this is home. This is where I belong. I'm made for this. And so he does. He brings them to the promised land. And then what happens is sin just makes a mess of it. This is our story. This is history. This is happening today. This is nothing that's a surprise to God. So what does he do? They get kicked out of the promised land and they wander in the wilderness. They become settlers in a world that they don't belong in. 
But there's these prophets that keep hinting there's going to come someone who will bring you home. There's going to be a return. There's going to be a king, an anointed one, Messiah. It's going to be good again. So you've got your people maybe, but you're not in your place. You're not home. You don't belong. And they use the word exile for those people. Travelers, sojourners, yeah, exiles. So our first letter is to that people in that time. We know ultimately Jesus comes. And remember when he says, um, when people ask him why his disciples aren't fasting, he said, why would they fast when the bridegroom is with them? Like when Jesus was there, it was the place. The disciples belonged. They were with Christ. They were in the presence of God in a beautiful, unique way. Like home came to earth and joined them for a while. And they belonged everywhere that Jesus was. And they belonged together. as a beautiful sense of home, beautiful sense of belonging. And then he ascended and he said, it's actually better for you that I go because there's more work that needs to be done. You know, pray for the workers, pray for the harvest, keep going because I'm going to my father's house to prepare many rooms. There's going to be another home and we're going to go there and that's where you're going to belong. And it's going to feel right. It's going to feel like you fit in the place, not just with your people in a place that you don't belong, but with your people in your place, like that full sense of unconditional acceptance. That's all, that's the story, right? It's in and out. And every time we're out, God feels for us. He doesn't want us out. He doesn't want us traveling in the wilderness. He doesn't want us lost in the desert. He wants us to come home. But we need advice on how to walk in the wilderness. And Hebrews says there's some that when they get into the hard places, they just give up. They never made it to the promised land. Let's not be like that. Let's keep looking forward to the home, being with the people that we belong with, loving each other. That's the unity thing, right? We have to belong with each other, no matter our politics, no matter our age, no matter our race, no matter our anything, whether we're mature in the faith, been a Christian for a million years, or just heard about Jesus today, we're supposed to belong together. This unconditional acceptance where you say, we're not all perfect, but we're all together. And we'll work through whatever it takes working through because God fixes stuff. And sin is our job, reconciliation is his, like, you know, the belonging. But we're in a wilderness of sorts now, and I feel like in, in the time that we live in, it's just feeling more and more like we Christians don't belong. That's fine. This is totally fine. We should belong with one another, though, because this belonging is meant to be what holds us until we get home until we get to where we belong in the place as well as with the people. So I wanna read these letters as advice, as encouragement and as advice for us all. The first one is in Jeremiah 29. And Jeremiah 29 is that verse you've seen on every coffee mug and t-shirt and bumper sticker, right? I know the plans I have for you, plans to hope and to prosper. And usually it gets taken as sort of like a Christian fortune cookie. Oh, great, he's got plans for me. I'm gonna win the lottery. Oh, he's got plans for me. The next person you meet, you're gonna meet a new friend today. Like, no, it's not this abstract, weird sort of God likes you verse. It's a very specific promise to the people of God who were in the dirt. They were in the desert. They were in the wanderings. They were in this time between the kingdom and Jesus. And they found themselves all sorts of places. They were exiles. You know, Dan, Daniel goes and becomes an exile in some places. We have Esther as an exile in other places. We have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego exiles in places. The, the Christians are forced to live it out where they don't belong. So it's really very practical advice that is given here. And it's not meant to be very abstract. It's specific. And so I want to read more than just that one verse that we're used to reading so that we can see this letter. This letter is from God through the prophet to the people. So there's someone who heard from God and said, God wants you to know this while you're in exile. Know these things. 
So let's just read together. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalworkers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This is what the letter said. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your son and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and I'll bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness, not for evil, plans to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. And you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places to where I have driven you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. It's this long game they're playing. We're going to wait on the Lord. But it's not an ambiguous thing. Like, I hope at some point I'll come and rescue you. He's like, no, I'm going to give you the date. I'm going to come at this time. And I'm going to help you do these things. This is a very historically rooted scripture, which is sometimes how it gets kind of like misused. If we use it as sort of a, a metaphorical Jesus loves you kind of a thing when it's actually a specific promise. These were people like Daniel that had been ripped out of their homeland and taken someplace else and were living there. And they were living under pagan rulers. You know, Everyone around them was worshiping pagan gods. They were forced to pay taxes to pagan empires. Like they weren't in their place. They didn't belong. But they were still called to be a people. And that people was not called to be isolationist in a way that like, don't talk to anyone around you, don't associate with anyone around you. No, it was plant yourself as an outpost of the kingdom. Now, we talk about ambassadors in the New Testament. Paul uses that word. This is what, be an outpost for the kingdom. And all these little pockets of your people where you belong are one day going to be coming home. One day I'm going to gather them back. So sometimes we as Christians don't know what our relationship is supposed to be to the people around us. Should we just disassociate from them completely? Well, in this instance, he says, plant yourself as like this beautiful garden in the middle of exile so that people look at you and say, wow, there's something different going on there. And pray for your pagan rulers and pray for the pagans that are around you. And Like he's not making this wall around them. He's making this open arms 
this embrace kind of posture, his message to the people of God. What can we learn from that today in our world where we feel like, well, I don't know what's going on here. I don't know what's going on here. It's tempting to want to just find your people and bunker down. That's not the same as live your lives and pray for the welfare of your country, even if it's misguided, even if it doesn't bless you, even if it throws you into lion's dens and fiery furnaces. Like that's the Nebuchadnezzar we're talking about here. This letter went to people that were eventually thrown into fiery furnaces and lion's dens. So the results of this, the, 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 the condition of our lives is not what's supposed to determine our purpose and our activities. God's wish to love the world so much that he'll send his son is our purpose. And so we plant ourselves. We pray for those around us. We seek the welfare around us. We're not trying to spite the world because it will not accept Christ. We're not going to repay evil with evil. You know, it's that sort of mentality. And I love that it's in an Old Testament context. So just so we can see that God is the same forever and ever and always, we've got Old Testament, flip to New Testament. First Peter. Chapter 1. Yeah, First Peter chapter 1. Peter who walked with Jesus. Peter was probably the closest. Peter who Jesus says, um, I'm going to build my church upon you. You're the rock. He has the same letter. You know, fast forward hundreds of years uh, to the church, to the people of God. And it really reads much in the same way. I got to find it myself here. Bookmarked it. So Peter writes a letter to the Christians. So Jesus has been with them. It's been good. You've been seeing miracles. You saw someone rise from the dead. Like some good stuff has been happening. And now you're going back to your own towns. You say, well, what's going to happen now? Is it going to continue? And they're starting to see continuous miracles and people coming to Christ. Okay, so this is going. Like they're seeing it go, but they're not in Jerusalem anymore. They're out in all the places where they live, the places to where they've been sent. It's an exile of sorts as well. And so when Peter writes his letter, he writes to those who are dispersed among the nations to the exiles. You see right there in verse one, this is his letter, how he phrases it. Peter, an apostle, a sent one of Jesus Christ, to all those who are elect, the chosen people of God, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. And he goes on from there. Look at the word exile for just a second. And... Think about that word with me. The, the Greek word for that, sometimes it's helpful to just think about a meaning of a word because it just gives it a, a different sort of flavor in our mind. And this is the case with the word exile. It's from the Greek word parapedemos. And that's a, two words together. Literally means a stranger alongside. An exile is a stranger alongside. So we are the exiles. We are strangers, but alongside others. Not strangers despite, strangers against, strangers like surviving. We're alongside those with us. What a cool way to picture an exile. We're a stranger alongside all the people. Like we're in this with them. Our world and there, we're living in this world where we feel like we don't belong. And yet we're here for purpose. We're here to come alongside people, not here to be against people. 
We're not here to divide from people. We're here to be alongside. That's what the technical definition of exile means, a stranger alongside. So Peter writes this letter to all those chosen people of God who are strangers alongside the world, living alongside the world, and dispersed, just scattered throughout the whole countryside. Uh, Flip to chapter 2, verse 4. Let's go to verse 9, 1 Peter 2, 9. So he's writing this letter to them, and he gives them specific advice as sojourners and exiles. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, you are a chosen race. So we're not a born race. You've not been born into Christianity. You cannot be born a Christian. You need to be chosen. You need to be saved. You need to be joined and adopted. You are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So beloved, you know, the people who I love, Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners, so travelers, I urge you as travelers and exiles, the strangers alongside the places where you live, the people you live live near. As travelers and strangers alongside, I urge you, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Can I read that again? This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Like, what a cool description of a Christian community where we're loving the brotherhood, where we're trying to keep ourselves free from the things that are going to taint us and knock us down, the things that are going to give us guilty consciences and bad reputations, but not so that we can be some perfect thing, but so we can declare how good is God because we're no different or no better. We're the same, but look at what God can do when people will just say, I trust you. I'm willing. I'm open. That becomes our testimony. So our purpose is to be scattered so that we as strangers, some of us a little stranger than others, can be strangers alongside normal folks. We're not the normal folks. We're the strange ones. But we're alongside. And our strangeness is going to get lots of accusations. But by just continuing to love and do good and serve the Lord, those accusations will either just be so falsified that they wouldn't have any merit We may still fall. Sometimes false accusations still knock you down. That's the lion's den, right? But also, sometimes they just don't stick because the things we're accused of don't actually match the lives we're leading. Live such good lives among the nations, ones with strangers alongside, that they want to say God is good, that they want to glorify God. And that's not going to happen from us being the same. Just being the same, 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 the same. And it's not going to happen if we feel too comfortable in this place. Like, this is our home. We need to feel like we don't belong here, but that we belong together. I think that's a beautiful description of Christian community. Belonging together as strangers alongside, 
alongside the people that we live near. Not strangers with barriers, strangers with open doors, strangers with open tables, strangers with listening ears, strangers with forgiveness, right? That kind of strange. Because <clears throat> actually that probably would stand out a lot. Because I don't know, that's a lot of open arms, a lot of listening, a lot of love, a lot of open doors. Like that doesn't feel like a description of the world we're living in. So cool. When we just get to do what Jesus says to do, we're going to look strange in the most beautiful kind of way. So I feel like these two letters from scripture present a consistent practical advice on what to do with government, on what to do with neighbors, on what to do as Christians in a place where we feel like we don't belong. And so let's apply it to ourselves. What do you pray for our president of the United States, whether you voted for him or not? What do you pray for the people administering vaccines, the people getting vaccines, whether you take them, whether you administer yourself, regardless of our stance, what do you pray for the people around us that know nothing about the fact that God loves them? Got an opportunity, got an opportunity to stand out, an opportunity to be strange, but not strange and separate, a stranger alongside. So this is where I wanna read this last little excerpt from this letter. It's called the Epistle to Diognetus, the letter to Diognetus, and um, written around AD 130. Listen to how the Christians were described, and just picture, what if we, and in some small ways we are, but if, what if we could really fully embody this sort of a description? It's going to look a lot like Jeremiah and a lot like Peter. It's going to look a lot like New Hope in beautiful ways. So this letter, <clears throat> the writer says, Christians are distinguished from other men neither by their country or their language or the customs which they observe. For they neither, neither inhabit cities of their own nor employ a peculiar form of speech nor lead a life which is marked out by any singularity. The course of conduct which they follow has not been devised by speculation or deliberation of inquisitive men, nor do they like some proclaim themselves advocates of merely human doctrines but inhabiting Greek, as well as foreign cities, barbarian cities, they call them, according as the lot of each of them has determined to follow the customs of the natives in respect to clothing, food, and the rest of their ordinary conduct. They display to us their wonderful and confessedly striking method of life. They dwell in their own countries, but simply as travelers. As citizens, they share in all things with others, yet they endure all things as if they were foreigners. Every foreign land to them is as their native country, and every land of their birth as a land of strangers. They marry, as do all others, and beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. There was a, there was a problem back in the Roman Empire with children being killed, and we find that too. And here they had a testimony in that way. It's beautiful. They have a common table, but they don't have a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. They obey the prescribed laws, and yet at the same time, they surpass the laws by their lives. They love all men, but are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death, and they are restored to life. They are poor yet they make many rich. They are in lack of all things, and yet they abound in all. They are dishonored, and yet in their very dishonor, they are glorified. 
They are evil spoken of and yet are justified. They are reviled and they bless. They are insulted and they repay the insult with honor. They do good and yet are punished as evildoers. When they are punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. They are assailed by the Jews as foreigners and are persecuted by the Greeks, yet those who hate them are unable to assign any reason for their hatred. In but out, good despite all, here but not for here, a people but not in our place. What a beautiful description of the church. This is how he closes and this is how I'm going to close for us this morning. This writer says, to sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. Think about that. He goes on, I'll read a few more, but if you just get that, what the soul is to the body, Christians are to the world. Ah, if we could be a good soul for this world, if we could. He writes, the soul is dispersed through all the members of the body. Christians are scattered through all the cities of the world. The soul dwells in the body, yet it's not of the body. And Christians dwell in the world, yet they're not of the world. The invisible soul is guarded by the visible body, and Christians are known indeed to be in the world, but their godliness remains invisible. The flesh hates the soul and wars against it, though itself suffering no injury, because it is prevented from enjoying pleasures. The world also hates the Christians, though it's in no wise injured, because they abstain from pleasures. The soul loves the flesh that hates it, and loves the members, and Christians likewise love those who hate them. The soul is imprisoned in the body, and yet it keeps together that very body. Christians are confined in the world as in a prison, <clears throat> and yet they keep together the world. The immortal soul dwells in a mortal tabernacle, and Christians dwell as sojourners in corruptible bodies, looking for an incorruptible dwelling in the heavens. The soul, when it is but ill provided with food and drink, becomes better, and in like manner the Christians though subjected day to day to punishment, increase the more in number. God has assigned them this illustrious position, which it were unlawful for them to forsake. I know it's kind of old English, and maybe some of those words get lost in translation, but what if we could be the soul for the world? We can, and we are. We just need to be aware of it and embrace that as our role. We are not here to just go along with the flow. We are not here to just fit in. And we're not here just to condemn and judge and draw distinctions in that. We're here to bless. Pray for those in authority over. Pray for the welfare of your country. Have open arms and open tables, but don't become corrupted by the things that are around us. Remain a stranger alongside a world which God loves so much that he gave his son to die for. May we be that kind of people as we live in exile ourselves. Music team, you come forward. I'm going to close this in a word of prayer, and then we'll close with a song. Father, I pray that you'd help us to be rooted in your word, <clears throat> that our actions would not be works, that we're hoping to obtain your favor, that our good deeds would not be for a sense of pride, a reputation, but that we would love you so much that we would love others because you do. And that we would seek the good just because we see all the things that war against us and seek to destroy us. I pray for true freedom for everyone here. Please set us free from...
the things that are tying us down, the ways we hold ourselves back from the voices and whispers in our ears that tell us we are no different. We are no better. In you, Christ, we have been remade. We are workmanship. We are craftsmanship. And so I pray for each one here that you'd help us to recognize our nature, recognize our identity, to see that once we were not a people, but you have put us together, we are now a nation of priests put on this earth to bless and not to curse. Forgive us, forgive our country, forgive those around us who don't even know better. But by your mercy, Father, lead us all closer and closer to you and closer and closer together. Uh, we thank you for this morning together in this snowy little New England chapel. Thank you for the souls that you have put in this room. Help us to go out and be the souls of the world this week. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.